following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. If someone were to pass by this little building in the next few minutes and asked Brenda at the back, what's going on here? Brenda would reply, well, we're, we're gathering to worship the living God, to praise him, to bless him for his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, well, that's good to hear. Who is preaching in your church tonight? Well, we have a visitor all the way from Scotland. Is he going to be speaking about the Ukraine and the tragedy of the Russian invasion? I don't think he is. Well, is he going to be speaking about the social issues that are tearing our nation apart? You know, I don't think he is. Well, pray tell me, what is this visitor from Scotland going to be speaking about? He's going to speak to us about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. I would guess that many people would scratch their heads and, and wonder, what has that to do with the price of beans? What has that got to do with the realities of life? What's that got to do with the, the wars, the rumors of wars, the confusions, the chaos, the tragedies, the miseries that are covering the face of our planet? What's that got to do with the great burning issues of our time? Well, actually, it has everything to do with the burning issues of our time. Our great need in these times is constantly to have our minds and hearts recalibrated. We need in the midst of all the, the flux and the confusions and the bewilderments that simply cover the face of our planet to be reminded that our God reigns. Nothing is more needful for us in these dark and darkening times to have our lives the more securely anchored in the exaltation of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And these words, especially in verses 9 through 11, are surely among the most hope-filled and exhilarating words you find anywhere in the Bible. God, the Father that is, has bestowed on him, his son, his only begotten son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hope-filled, exhilarating words. They speak to us of a regnant, 
Jesus Christ, who is not only King and Lord of his church, but of the cosmos he created. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in whatever way it pleases God for them to do so. And the one sound that will cascade throughout the cosmos is Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what recalibrates our minds and hearts as we look out on the bewilderments, the Alice in Wonderland thinking, the childish living that so brings disgrace and dishonor, not just obviously to our nations, yours and mine, but that brings dishonor to God. But God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. I want to do three things this evening. I want to look with you first at the immediate context of these words in verses 9 through 11. Secondly, to look at the wider biblical context of these words. And then finally, to draw four applications for how we live in the light of the exaltation and regnant reign of Jesus Christ. I don't ever like leaving applications to the end. I much prefer applications woven into the fabric of the sermon, so I hope there will be applications in the fabric of the sermon. But I wanted to leave you with four hopefully memorable applications. There'll be no Latin There'll be no Hebrew, there'll be no Greek, there will be simple Anglo-Saxon English. Four applications. Number one then, the immediate context. You can't read this passage, especially from verse 5, and not realize that Paul is establishing an Adam-Christ comparison. Throughout the Bible, there is an embedded Adam-Christ comparison. And here, from verse 5, we can see that very clearly. Because there is a backdrop, there is a backcloth, there is a redemptive historical context to what Paul is writing. He says to them, have this mind among yourselves. That's probably the best translation which you have, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Unlike the first Adam, this last Adam did not grasp at equality with God. He had equality with God. It was native to who he was. But he would come into the world in humility He would come into the world as the better than Adam who would fulfill all righteousness. And the key word in the immediate context is the word therefore that begins the ninth verse. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him 
the name that is above every, every other name. Our first head, Adam, lost everything for himself and for all who in the purposes of God were united to him in that first covenant of works. He lost everything by grasping. You remember how Satan comes in the guise of a serpent and says, I can make you godlike. God is withholding something good from you. He was demeaning the character of God. And Adam, as our first covenant head, listens to the serpent. And in his listening, he brings himself and all humanity with him down, not just to the dust, and not just to the dust of death, but to the dust of eternal death. But God had a better than Adam, ready, willing, and waiting. Not that God found himself in a conundrum. The first Adam has failed. What am I going to do now? From times eternal, God had ordained within his wise and holy, if inscrutable, purposes to us. The fall itself. God uses even the wrath of man to praise him. He uses sin sinlessly for his glory. And out of the wreckage and the misery of Adam's sin, God had already prepared a remedy. And in the fullness of time, the remedy came. And what Adam failed to do for himself and for all who were connected to him in that first covenant... God's better than Adam came. And that's why this key word, therefore, is so significant. Here is the one man who has merited anything from God. Here is the one man who has deserved anything from God. Therefore, having been obedient to death, even the death of a cross, therefore, because of his obedience, God has highly exalted him. And all who are connected to him. Because like the first Adam, the last Adam comes into the world, not as a private man, but as a public man, as a representative head, as a covenant head. He comes to stand before God for all who would throughout the ages of history put their hope and trust in him. He comes to fulfill all righteousness, not for himself, but for those he came to seek and to save. Here is the one man who has merited anything. And that's why if someone asks me, so you don't believe in salvation by works? I say, absolutely not. I believe passionately in salvation by works. I just don't believe in salvation by my works, but by the saving works of my Savior, Jesus Christ, who came into the world to live the life I couldn't live and to die the death I couldn't die, and to stand before God in my place 
and to give to God what I could never give to him. And the father, as the reward of his son's holy obedience, pledged in the covenant of redemption in eternity. I often think of those words in Isaiah 6, if I can slightly take them out of their context. When the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? I often think of that in relation to the covenant of redemption. Whom shall we send and who will go for us? And the son says, Father, here am I. Send me. And in the fullness of time, he comes and he merits for us exaltation. God the Father has exalted him to the highest place. Highly exalted him. It's a, it's a Greek super superlative. Highly exalted him. And in him, all who are connected to him. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, is it 21, 22? As in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. If we are in Christ, we will be made alive with Christ. We died with him. We were raised with him. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. And one day we shall be with him. And so that's the immediate context. Jesus Christ has been exalted and given the name which is above every other name. But now, in a little more detail, look with me at the wider biblical context. And that's why we read the words of the second psalm. Let me read to you again verses 7 and 8. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. So it's the Messiah speaking. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Ask of me. And we're to see the exaltation of Jesus Christ that Paul so wonderfully portrays for us in verses 9, 9 through 11 of Philippians 2. We're to see in this light the Son, as it were, coming to the Father and saying, Father, I've done everything that you asked of me. I've left nothing undone. There isn't one thing that I've left unfinished. Tetelestai, it is finished. Now, Father, fulfill your promise. I'm asking you for the nations. As the reward of my obedience, my loving obedience, my heart obedience to you. Covenantal, absolutely, but lovingly given. Now, with that in mind, note this. In at least two other occasions, we read of God having a son. In Exodus chapter 4, you remember how Israel is called 
God's Son. Verses 22 and 23 of Exodus 4. God says, let my son Israel go. Israel corporately is described as the Son of God. But there is a prior reference to God having a son in Genesis chapter 1. Everything goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God created man. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You say, well, Ian, God makes Adam in his own image and after his own likeness. Where does it say anything about being a son? Well, those of you who know your Bibles a little will know where I'm going now. The genealogy in Luke, the last verse in Luke chapter 3. Adam, the son of God. The Bible describes Adam as God's son. Israel is God's son. Adam is God's son. They're God's son by creation, by adoption, not by eternal generation, but they're called God's son. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Each of them, Adam individually and Israel corporately, failed. They were failures as sons. Absolute failures. Adam failed in the garden. Israel fails throughout the wilderness. And then along comes, let's jump a few generations to David, the man after God's own heart. He fails. Every successive Adam-like figure fails. But God always had a plan. And the plan was not devised in response to the failure. The plan was devised before the failure and included the failure. And what was God's plan? Well, perhaps it's nowhere more wonderfully and simply expressed than in Ephesians 1 verse 10, where Paul writes... God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God had an ultimate plan. Now our English translations don't really help us as much as they could here. Because what Paul actually writes is, God had a plan to unite again in Christ all things in heaven and on earth. Remember how in Colossians 1 we're told that it was by Christ and in Christ that all things were created. All things were created by him and what? For him. For him. Sin comes into the world. Disruption, brokenness, death, misery, sin. But God had a plan. And his plan centered on 
a better son than Adam and a better son than Israel. It focused on his only begotten son. And don't lose only begotten for only. It's a confusion of language. It's a confusion of language. God's ultimate purpose does not concern you. It doesn't concern me. It doesn't concern the people in the houses round about here. We'll come to that in a moment though. It concerns his son. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the likeness of his, of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are God's proximate purpose. The Lord Jesus is God's ultimate purpose. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's lands. I'm not underestimating the saving work of our Savior. Yes, he came into the world to seek and save the lost, but the ultimate purpose of God does not terminate on you or on me, but on highly exalting his Son, giving him the name which is above every other name. Now there is great discussion and debate as to what this name is. What is the name that is above every other name? That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is this name? Well, some say it's the name Jesus. Well, it can't be Jesus. Because the name that is given is bestowed in consequence to the meritorious obedience of Jesus by his death and resurrection. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name. The name bestowed is in consequence of and as a result of and as the fruit of the saving obedience of Jesus Christ. Well, others say, well, granted it can't be Jesus. It must be Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, if you want. Well, I, I somewhat struggle with that as well because the name Yahweh, God who is, who was, and who is to come, was not bestowed on the exalted risen Jesus Christ. He had Yahweh from times eternal. He is Yahweh. He never stopped being Yahweh. When the Apostle Paul says himself he emptied in verse 7. He doesn't mean that Jesus divested himself of Godhead. And then at a later stage the Godhead was restored to him. The kenotic theory. Read the language. Himself he emptied taking. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's subtraction by addition. He doesn't stop being anything. He didn't empty himself of all but love and certainly didn't bleed and die for Adam's helpless race. So if it isn't Jesus and it isn't Yahweh, what, what is this name that's above every other name. That, that at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and in earth. Well, 
What other name could it be than the name of the now regnant, risen, triumphant God-man Jesus Christ, King of all the cosmos, that God might unite again in him all things in heaven and earth. It's the glorified, incarnate God-man. That's the name that's above every other name. And God bestows on him that name of triumphant conqueror, exalted king as the reward of his obedience. His is the name which is above every other name. So we've seen the immediate context. This exaltation is the reward of his obedience. We've seen the wider context. He is the better son than Adam, the better son than Israel, the better son than David. He is the son who didn't fail. He is the son who merited the ends of the earth as his inheritance. Well, if that's the theology of the text, what does that actually mean for us? Let me mention four things. It should give the profoundest encouragement for Christians who are suffering, for whom life is hard, who have known nothing but defeats and failures and disappointments. Because it says to them, your Saviour Jesus Christ reigns. You know, it's not great faith that unites you to Christ. It's faith. It's not weak faith that separates you from Jesus Christ. It's no faith. Samuel Rutherford once wrote, My faith hangs by a thread, but it's a thread of Christ's spinning. I'm not minimizing suffering and defeat and failure and disappointment. But Satan is always tempting us to despair. He's always turning us in upon ourselves. He's always saying, you're a waste of space. You're always failing. You never rise above the ordinary. And what are we going to say? Oh, yes, I do. I think we say, I often say this to the evil one. You don't know how ordinary I really am. You don't know how bad my failures really are. My Savior does. But I'm exalted with him. I'm raised with him. I'm seated with him in the heavenly places. You see, when, when Christians are struggling, John Owen is wonderful in this. Volume 1, Glory of Christ. When Christians are struggling, you set before them the glory of Christ. Maybe you're struggling tonight in some way. Maybe failure, disappointment, defeat. Jesus Christ reigns. The Father has exalted him. He is able to help you. He's able to make you clean. He's able to give you grace to help in your time of need. Secondly, this truth is a glorious incentive to mission. 
you're going out round the houses in the area. Tell them about Jesus Christ, the exalted King. As opportunity is given. And as you go, remind yourself that while you may go tremblingly, as I certainly would, that you may go wondering if anything will come out of your mouth that sounds remotely coherent. Remember that the Saviour who sends you is the exalted King. I remember once as a young student, I was involved in an inter-varsity church mission and we were going out in twos, knocking on doors in the parish and inviting people uh, to various meetings. And one night, um, there was an uneven number, so I went out myself and the rain was just Greenville-like pouring down. It just was incessant and I was drenched. And... After about an hour, I think, or so, I thought, I'm just going back to the church hall. I'm wet. I'm cold. Nobody's really interested in what I've got to say. And then I remembered something I had just read in Thomas Watson. Remember who thou art, blood royal of heaven. I remember thinking, my I'm the blood royal of heaven. My saviour Jesus Christ is the king of all the cosmos. It galvanised me. It helped me to forget the rain and to keep on knocking. And so when you're going round these doors, remember that you have a great king with you who is able to subdue every enmity, every hard heart. One of my very first entrees into door-to-door visitation, I was converted a few months and I heard there was an older Christian in my social housing area and uh, he got to hear about me and he said, oh, I hear you've been converted. I said, yes, I have. He said, well, myself and this other young lad, we we, we go out in door-to-door visitation. I'd never heard of door-to-door visitation. Oh, I said, well, what do you do? Well, we knock on doors and we tell them we're Christians and we give them a gospel tract. Oh, I said, that's that's really good. Uh, I'll do that. Now, my mother and father were really not very happy. You're going to knock on doors around here. They'll think you're mad. I said, well. So I remember going with this young lad and I vividly remember we knocked on this, I can picture my mind's eye, it was three flights up in a kind of tenement, knocked on the door, and this youngish, well, I was about 16, almost 17, fellow in his mid-twenties, maybe a little older, married, came to the door and said, yes, he was quite polite. Um, and I said, uh, my friend and I, I hardly knew the boy, in fact, I didn't know him before the night, we're here just to tell people that the Lord Jesus Christ is a great saviour, And we would like you to receive this little uh, pamphlet that speaks about Jesus. And the chap, he said, oh, he said, I'm a Roman Catholic. Now, I was about to say, oh, that's interesting. My mother's a Roman Catholic. And the young lad said, the Pope's the Antichrist. (laughs) Now, that's not the way to visit. Now, I thought this older fellow was going to punch. (laughs) It took me, who knew absolutely nothing, I knew John 3.16 and a little bit more. Um, 
to try and calm the man down. Eventually he took a gospel tract or something. We need to go out calmly and confidently knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is on high. He reigns. To him every knee will bow. Reluctantly or gladly every knee will bow. It's a great incentive to mission. Thirdly, it's a glorious reality to inspire worship. We live in days when Christian worship in even conservative churches seems to be going the way of all flesh. That can sound arrogant. I don't mean it to be. I'm glad you sang the Getty Town End hymn. I think it's great. Speak, O Lord, as we wait on you. I think it's a great prayer and preparation for hearing God's word. But we're coming before an exalted Jesus Christ. The Father has exalted him to the highest place. And whatever else our worship should be, it should be joy-filled reverence. Not gloom, not long-faced, but joy-filled reverence. Our worship should be elevated because we're worshipping the one who has been elevated to the highest place. You know, I I think I could almost forgive a minister anything. I could almost bear with a, a poor sermon if only he lifts me up in his prayer to God. The first prayer of a service of worship sets the tone for everything that follows. And if anything else, people should be confronted with a with a pastor who, who believes that he's coming before an exalted, enthroned, rewarded Jesus Christ. And then the last thing I would say is this. This great truth brings comfort and hope to lost sinners. How is that? Well, for this simple reason... What no sinner could ever attain to, exaltation with God, Jesus Christ has attained for all who put their trust in him. It's a great truth to present to people who are lost without hope and without God. Oh, I'm, I'm not good enough. Uh, I failed so often. You say, well, you don't know the half of your failures. But there is a man at God's right hand who has done everything that you could never do. He lived the life you could never live. He died the death you could never die. And God has exalted him. And salvation is by placing your trust in him who worked on your behalf. I have no problems with the covenant of works as long as it's understood as the confession puts it beautifully that by voluntary condescension God has stooped down to us and that Adam in the garden isn't um, a contractual figure. He's a son of God. There's a relationship of creation and filialness with God. 
And the gospel says to this world, there is a king that God has established on Zion, his holy hill. He has merited everything. We could never find our way to that holy hill. We could never by our own enfeebled, sin-enfeebled efforts find our way to God. But at the right hand of the Father, there is one who has merited everything for us. And it's out of the treasury. Let me put it like this and explain it just briefly. It is out of the treasury of his merit, by which I mean out of the treasury of his person and work, which are indissoluble, or to use Zach's lovely word in the opening prayer, indefectible. That was a great word. Indefectible. I thought, yes, an indefectible saviour. He is one at all for us. And so our our great need is to be connected to this exalted king. Because one day, every knee will bow to him. When we were in Cambridge, our next door neighbour, University Don, a really nice fellow, were talking in the garden one day and he said, you know, Ian... I I wish I had faith like you. And I said, John, faith won't take you anywhere. It isn't faith you need. It's Jesus Christ you need. Now, it's faith that connects us to Jesus Christ, but it's Jesus Christ we preach. We don't preach faith. We preach Jesus Christ. And how faith unites us, connects us, To him and all his merits, here am I and the children God has given me. Hebrews 2, quoting Isaiah 8, here am I and the children God has given me. And who are the children that God gives to his son? Those who rest the weight of all that they are on his son. Those who come to him with empty hands, with empty hands, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to his cross I cling because there is my merit. My merit is in the work of the Saviour accomplished on my behalf and in my place. The exaltation of Jesus Christ. May the Lord help us to remember every day that God has a king that he has enthroned on his holy hill. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.